Let's bring us turn to summer, which officially begins this week. I know kids just got out of school. At least almost all of them got out of school this week. It's exciting, right? We have been on a journey together as a church since early spring, nearly three months, looking at the church's past, the adventures of the New Testament church, we've called it. We're not quite done yet with our journey, but we are done with the past. We are transitioning today, and next week we are going to look a little bit at the future of the church, not the future of Lake Ridge Baptist Church. That's a different activity we'll be doing throughout this fall. But today and next week, we will look at the future of Christ's universal church. And then once we finish that, we will begin our summer series as we go through 1 Peter. So now you know what's coming next. But before we look ahead to the future, I thought it would be appropriate to take a few minutes to reflect on where we've been, what we have seen and learned in our journey through the adventures of the New Testament church, and and specifically what they mean to us as a 21st century church sitting here in Lake Ridge, Virginia, a church that's in transition, a church that is preparing to come together in September and October and November as a whole body to work through and discern God's specific vision for our church going forward. And so to help me, as I kind of throughout this time, I'm like, where are we going with this series? What is this teaching me? And so I started to, in my mind, integrate it into a little bit of a visual. So I'm going to walk through that. I apologize that I am not an artist, but, you know, bear with me. Uh, We started back at the beginning of April, with the Great Commission, the the mission that Christ gave the disciples then, and which remains the mission of our church, of any church that is faithful to the will of Christ. To make disciples of all nations by going and baptizing and teaching to obey everything Christ commands. Then we looked at that foundational vision of the early church, whose unity was built around learning together, loving together, living life together, and praying and worshiping together in Acts 2. We saw that the church was emboldened when it prayed together, when it prayed immediately in the midst of a crisis, when it was praying Scripture, and when it was praying to accomplish Christ's mission, that that is what really forged it as a body. We learned that the church can be resilient in the face of suffering, if we are confident in the truth of the gospel, the goodness of the gospel, and we can do this because we know that God is the source of the gospel. Then we took a look at the multiplicative power of having the right priorities as a church and the right people doing the right jobs, and and we saw how that reinforces that Acts 2.42 foundation. That when we have faithful deacons and faithful lay leaders who are who are caring for the church, and it allows the pastors to focus on things like prayer and preaching and teaching. And so for those outgoing deacons who served faithfully this past year under difficult circumstances, I thank you because what you do matters to this foundation that any church is built on. And for those who are coming in, I thank you in advance for what you will be doing to help keep that foundation strong. We thought that like Philip, we need to be barrier busters, right? That there are very real barriers out there, barriers of ignorance, barriers of culture, barriers of misunderstanding, of guilt, of sin, of shame, and that we need to boldly go out of here 
and into our community to accomplish the mission of making disciples of all nations. We saw that we must be eager to maintain unity, unified in one body, one hope, one faith, one baptism. We learned that unity is both an act of the will, we have to be eager to do it, but it also is an act of the Holy Spirit because only the Spirit enables us to change our hearts, to choose those things that are necessary to be unified. We saw that as pastors, we are called to equip you to do the hard work of ministry, to equip you in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of Christ and doctrinal soundness and Christ-likeness so that each member of the congregation can do the, the things that God has specifically set aside for them to do, the things he has set aside for you to do to build up the body of Christ. We learned that the only way to effectively reach the world, to close that gap between those who know Christ and those who do not, is to be a church that multiplies mature believers and then sends those mature believers out and intentionally multiplies itself, always strengthened by the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And finally, last week, we saw that at the heart of everything we do as a church, no matter our gifts and our talents and our ministry, we have to be first and foremost loving. I do not think it is an accident that we were reminded last week that at the heart of the Christian witness must be love, even as our nation was dealing with hate. Love is to be our distinguishing thing. And we saw that once again, love is not a feeling, love is not an emotion, it is a choice of the will to demonstrate love, and it is an act of the Holy Spirit to be able to do so. Now, while there are certainly other lessons that we can draw from the New Testament, other adventures we could see, as you see right now, we have plenty of material here to build a church upon. We have spent 10 weeks looking back. I hope that you have been blessed by it. I certainly have been and have learned quite a lot in the process. So now I want to take two weeks and briefly look forward to see what is ahead for us as a church and, and why we should be so excited about heaven. I think it is very common among Christians to lack excitement about heaven. I suspect it's the dying part. But we should be excited about heaven. I think a lack of excitement about heaven dampens our enthusiasm here in this life. I think it, it weakens our witness here in this life. But as we begin to see, I think, I hope I can do justice to this passage, that heaven is going to be really, really awesome. And I mean that in the classic and literal meaning of the word, not the sort of 80s hipster version of the word. I get to use the word awesome a lot this week and next, and I don't even have to seem like a dude who grew up in the 80s, because this is awesome. We are full of awe about what we see in heaven. Our passage this morning is Revelation 7, verses 9 through 12. John records, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, 
from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And you might be asking what this has to do with the New Testament church. But this is what the end looks like for the New Testament church, which includes us. Right, this passage of chapter 7 follows immediately after the events of chapter 6 in Revelation. I'll not go on too long about a digression, but chapter 6 is detailing some of the, the terrible judgments being cast down upon the earth. And chapter 6 ends with a question, right? All the powerful and rich are cowering in caves to escape judgment. And they say, who can stand? And we see in chapter 7, the church can stand. For the past 10 weeks, I have been challenging you quite often. We need to be looking at this. We need to be considering that, all trying to keep it integrated within the mission of Christ. And today, there will be a few challenges, but, but I mostly want you to just think about and reflect and savor the future of the church, the universal church. Now, let me first issue a disclaimer about what I'm not going to adequately explain this morning. Because as is true for much of Revelation, this passage has many parts that are crystal clear. And there are some parts where smart, faithful, Bible-believing Christians have disagreed for a long time. For example, who is this multitude? Well, there are some who will say that they're actually the same people that were mentioned as the 144,000 in the previous. Okay, that's complicated. I kind of get it. Right? Others say no way. There are some who argue that this multitude is just those believers who die in the final tribulation of the world. But others say no, this is the church, the entire church throughout history because the church has been in tribulation since its birth. And at the risk of disappointing you, I am not going to resolve these difficult questions this morning. People have been talking about them for years. I don't think I can make a substantive contribution in the next 20 minutes. Instead, what I'm going to do is what I usually do when I encounter a difficult passage, and that is concentrate on the parts I can understand, make sure I understand the main points being made, and how to apply those. I found that when I do that, usually the other details can recede into the background until a time when I'm better equipped to understand and actually need to understand. I believe that while we may not be able to come to a church-wide consensus on who the multitude is, the main point of this passage, these main points, they stand, and I think we can all agree on them, and I'm excited to reflect on those. Because what we do know about this group is that this is an enormous group of believers who have been gathered together to worship God in one beautiful, unified display of adoration for the Creator of the universe and His eternal Son, both of whom are physically present, comforting those believers 
Believers who have been washed clean of all sin. So whether this is a vision of the entire church across the centuries or just a massive body of believers gathered in the final end times, what this reveals about the future of the church, I think, is substantively the same either way. It's really, really awesome. So I got to use it again. I believe that if the Great Commission is Christ's mission for the universal church, and I hopefully have made that case successfully for the last 10 weeks, then this is Christ's vision for the universal church. Right? That it is the perfect fulfillment of the command to make disciples of all nations. That here at the end of time, believers of all nations are indeed gathered together, one body of believers joining with the angels to worship God the Father and God the Son. This is the perfection and the completion of the Great Commission. And what I love about it is that regardless of who exactly this multitude is, we are getting a glimpse of what our ultimate future will be like. Right? That what we will ultimately be experiencing as part of the universal church. So in that spirit, I want to use our remaining time this morning to walk back to the passage and briefly reflect on and appreciate seven qualities that we see in the church at its most perfect. Unless you're scared, I'm not going into subpoints. It's, it's a reflection, so we're going to be really quick. First, the perfected church has multiplied. John's description begins in verse 9 with, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. So how many believers are gathered for this worship service? He literally says, nobody is able to count. Now, unless you think, well, maybe everybody up there is really bad at counting, let me give you a frame of reference. In Revelation 9.16, John counts a demon army that has twice 10,000 times 10,000. That, for those of you who don't want to do a lot of math, is 200 million. So John can count to 200 million. So I think we should understand that this uncountable multitude is way bigger than that. That we are likely talking about numbers in the billions gathered before the throne. And so regardless of whether this group is the entire church throughout history or whether it's, whether it's just those gathered at the end times, those who came to faith during the final tribulation, it is clear that the church has multiplied dramatically, just as we talked about two weeks ago. Second, the perfected church is diverse. John continues to describe this crowd. He says, it was from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. It seems to me that John goes out of his way to make sure that we understand the point here. Every single ethnic group is represented. I say this because any one of those four descriptions he used could be said this is sufficient to cover all people. But he uses four different ways to indicate every group is represented. Not every person, but every group has been reached with the gospel. At this worship gathering, there are representatives of every single nation, every single tribe, every single people group, and speakers of every single language in the world. That's beautiful, I think. 
According to the International Mission Board, there are currently 11,479 distinct people groups in the world. Of those, about 60% are what we call unreached, meaning that fewer than 2% of their population are evangelical Christians. Within that group, nearly half, 3,049, don't even have an evangelical church planting strategy in place. So right now, there is not a strategy in place for even getting the gospel to 3,000 groups of people who we know will be represented in heaven. John's vision reveals that the mission of Christ will be completed, that every nation, every tribe, every people, and every language will be represented in the presence of God and Jesus Christ. This is something that Jesus promised to us, that it would be the precursor to the end of the age. Matthew 24, 14 indicates, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the world, and as a testimony to all nations, and that word nations could also be translated as peoples, people groups, and then the end will come. We see in John's vision, the great commission will be completed. Someone will make disciples of all nations. Will we be part of that? An interesting side question that occurs to me is, what is it about this group that lets John know they are from every nation and tribe and people and tongue? And it may just be he knows, because he's having a vision from God. And that may be entirely right, and if so, you can ignore the next few minutes. No, that's... 30 seconds or so. They're dressed similarly, right? They're doing similar activities. So what is it that says that there are 11,479 people groups represented here? Here I can only speculate, which I normally despise doing from the front. Um, But I picture that as they worship as one, that they are doing it in their own unique cultural manner. Look around at churches. Different cultural groups praise and worship God in different ways, in physical ways, in verbal ways, in tone of voice. I don't think that's gone away. It's also possible that this loud voice that is expressing one single message could be expressing it in 11,479 distinct languages and dialects with unique expressions of worship. Because one thing we know about God, He is very creative. And I don't think we're going to lose any of our unique distinctiveness, either individually or culturally, when we go to heaven. Instead, I think what we see here is a beautiful mosaic of worship. One unified whole made up of billions of individual hearts. The perfected church is in the presence of God and Jesus. I've mentioned it already, but John is explicit in verse 9 that this multitude is standing before the throne and before the Lamb. We know from early in Revelation that God himself is seated on that throne. We know that the Lamb is Jesus. So this multitude, this perfected church, is standing directly in the presence of the creator of the universe and his eternal son. There is no veil. There is no curtain. There is no cloud. There is no smoke. Last week we talked about Paul when he said, you know, now we look in a mirror dimly, but then we will see clearly. As the hymn says, our faith becomes our sight. That's what we see here. Their faith, billions of people's faith, is their sight as they see God and Jesus unveiled. That's awesome. 
It's also an amazing comfort to us when we face difficult times to understand that the reward of our faith is to be in the presence of God and Jesus. That no matter how difficult it is here on earth, no matter what the persecutions and bad experiences are, we will be in their presence. And there's more to it than just their presence. Because verses 16 and 17, if you keep reading the passage on, verses 16 and 17 tell us, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. It's breathtaking. Fourth, the perfected church is washed clean by the blood of Jesus. Verse 9 says that they are clothed in white robes. And in case you're wondering, what's the deal with the white robes? John tells us. Read on to verse 14. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. This imagery we see here of the church perfected in white robes, I think, gives us a very, very clear visual understanding of exactly what our condition is in Christ as Christians, exactly how God sees us, no matter how hard it is for us to believe. It can be hard for us to believe because we know that each of us have sinned, whether we like to admit it or not. That each of us have kind of been like a kid out making mud pies in our best clothes. That we've been getting our spiritual clothes filthy and dirty and greasy and smoky throughout a lifetime of sin. Paul tells us in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have spent our lives doing things we should not do, looking at things we should not look at, saying things we should not say, thinking things we should not think. We spent our lives failing to do things we should do. We have spent our lives covering ourselves in filth. But God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God sent his son, Jesus, to take the punishment that all that sin earned for us. He sent his son to suffer and die on the cross. His body broken and his blood poured out so that our sins could be forgiven. 1 John 2.2 says he is the propitiation for our sins and And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. I've explained before, since propitiation is not a casual conversational word, it is a big fancy word that means the sacrifice that is necessary to satisfy the justifiable anger of God at our sin. Jesus poured out his precious blood to be that sacrifice, to satisfy that anger that we incurred ourselves bit by bit. He poured out his blood precisely so that we could wash our robes clean in it, and all we have to do is believe in him as Lord and Savior and turn away from those sins. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
When we put our faith in Jesus, we are instantaneously changed. We are a new creation in Christ. Our nasty old robes are now washed whiter than snow. That's what Jesus did for us. And that is exactly how we look in God's eyes. Fifth, the perfected church is victorious. John says the multitude is standing with palm branches in their hands. Palm branches were the traditional Jewish symbol of victory. And here the church is gathered together in a victory celebration over the forces of Satan and sin and death. Palm Sunday, we realize, was but a pale foreshadowing of the ultimate victory celebration of the Lamb. According to verse 14, this perfected church was drawn out of the great tribulation. To borrow the watchword from one of our earlier adventures, this perfected church is resilient. It has endured the tribulations of the world and now stands triumphant in heaven. This church is perfectly safe, sheltered, and comforted by the living God. This should give us comfort and confidence as we face the challenges and persecutions of this life. Because we know the church will be victorious. And that everyone who has struggled and suffered along the way will be comforted by God. Six, the perfected church is unified. That, I think, is possibly the most amazing thing about having a group of billions of people from thousands of different cultures and people groups that they are able to sing in one voice and worship God. Right, verse 10 says that they cry out with a loud voice. So despite that extraordinary diversity we talked about a few minutes ago, this is a church that is united. We have spoken of unity often in recent weeks, and here we see what it looks like. One heart, one worship, one God, yet without losing any of who we were made to be by our Creator. That's God's vision for unity in the church. And finally, the perfected church is worshiping. We've already said that they are in the presence of God and Jesus, and yet what are they doing? What do we see them do? We see them worship. Verse 10, they're proclaiming, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The church has united to praise God and Jesus for the salvation that he brought into their lives, despite all the sins. Right? They are acutely aware of their condition back on earth. They know what they did, and yet here they stand in their white robes, forgiven, saved. And in fact, the church is joined by all the angels, as described in verses 12 and 13. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Think about how awesome that will be. To be in a worship service with billions of brothers and sisters in Christ. With the entire army of angels. Worshiping and blessing God in just about every way imaginable. So there you have it, a little, a little taste of the future for Christ's universal church. From this vision, we know that the church will be perfected. We can have confidence. 
we know that the Great Commission will be completed. It, it seems so hard for us. It seems so unlikely in a broken and damaged world, and yet what greater encouragement can we have than these two facts? Jesus promises he will be with us every step of the way if we're doing the Great Commission, and we know now it will get done. Christ's mission will get accomplished. His vision for the church will come true. That's the encouragement we should take from Revelation is that when it is hard now, we know how the ending is. So the question that stands before us is, what is Lake Ridge Baptist Church's role in accomplishing this vision so that we can join in the church universal, the church perfected? Join with, please join with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this vision that you gave John and that he has shared with us. We thank you for this glimpse of what heaven will be like for us. We're excited about the prospect of being in your presence. Being in your presence with billions and billions of our brothers and sisters. Lord, help us to draw encouragement and energy from this vision to draw confidence, and to live in light of our future, to live in that light today. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. You've seen a glimpse of what's in store for those who put their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And it's just a taste, right? And this is just a part compared to the beautiful eternal future we're going to talk about next week as we consider life everlasting in the new heaven and the new earth. But even this taste is pretty amazing. And this perfection is available to anyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And so the question is, for anyone who has not yet trusted in Jesus, what is stopping you? If you are ready to invite Jesus into your heart and into your life, to trust in him to perfect you, then as the music plays, I would ask you come forward and pray with us. Pray with us. Pray with us. Pray with us.